Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. Welcome, everybody, to Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Luke McLeese, and I'm very excited to welcome our guest today, Rob Williams. And let me talk to you a little bit about Rob's background before Rob gets to talk about uh, some of his personal stuff. But the Rob is a PhD student in military history at Ohio State University. His research focuses on the relationship between organizational culture, operational behavior, and memory in military institutions throughout history. His dissertation, tentatively titled The Airborne Mafia, Organizational Culture and Institutional Change in the U.S. Army from 1940 to 1968, is in its early stages of development. It will analyze the creation and transmission of values, beliefs, and norms from one subculture formed in World War II to a larger Army bureaucracy, and the impacts on the Cold War institutional development. His research will demonstrate the capacity for a tactical subculture to have an enormous effect on its parent organization as well as national strategic behavior. Wow, that sounds completely awesome and I'm so excited to to talk to you today, Rob. Rob, can you tell our listeners about uh, some about your personal life, some of your background? Yeah, no problem and thanks for having me on, Luke. I was born and raised out in Washington State, so I'm a Pacific Northwest uh, guy at my core. Um, I served in the Army as an infantryman and paratrooper for over 15 years and I'm a graduate of the U.S. Army's Airborne Jumpmaster and Pathfinder Schools. I served in every position in infantry platoon from rifleman to platoon sergeant and I served in multiple levels of battalion and brigade staffs. I'm now I'm using that experience and background to sort of inform my interests historically. My service is directly informing uh, my historical research, and and that's that's what I'm going to research is the uh, the emergence of this airborne mystique that sort of still kind of holds uh, sway in, in the army today. Uh, I'm very proud to say I'm the author of an article in VFW Magazine about using grief to bridge the civ mill divide, um, based on an experience I had in in a classroom as an undergraduate at UNC Chapel Hill, where I earned my uh, bachelor's. Of arts and history and peace, war, and defense in 2018, and then and then I just recently completed my master's degree here at the Ohio State University uh, this summer. Amazing, amazing! It sounds super, super interesting, Rob. And I love so I love that you're focusing your research starting with the airborne culture in that World War II time period because I know from from someone who's a non-army person looking in, when you think of the airborne, you know, you think of the original version of the 101st and the 82nd, and you always think, or at least I do, think of those World War II era troops and culture. So that's really interesting. And, you know, that seems to be what Hollywood has latched onto also. Right. And I'm sure we can talk about that because one theme <laughs> in veterans and academics is Hollywood can be our friend and our foe. So <laughs> Right, right, right. And, and well, that's what I'm, you know, part of what I'm looking at is this idea of, I mentioned memory, right? The memory of the war, what that is versus the reality and, and sort of this discourse reality kind of paradigm 
and how they inform each other and, and inform what we think uh, about past and also how, how the army uh, changed and evolved in the early Cold War and, and even even today. I mean, I can point to some things that were developed in the 1940s to the, you know, in the way back, it seems like 10 years ago, but in January of 2020, when uh, an element of the 82nd Airborne rapidly deployed to Iraq after the Iranian um, missile strike on a base there. So, and, and so there's definitely linkage there and, and then across the I'm trying to folk hone in on on a certain time period, but really, I mean, it, you could you could link it over the course of the the second half of the 20th century into the 21st. That's so interesting. Getting down to the roots of it sounds like that's great. So let me ask you, sir, and this is one of the questions that we ask all of our guests right now in this time period. What is one thing that you see as veterans in academics doing really well? What, what do we do well in, in academics? I'll turn it back on you real quick as a, as a, as a graduate student should, right? And ask another question. Uh, are we talking about veterans working in higher ed or veterans leaving the service and attending school? Because th- they're not obviously completely separate, but I think that they, we can talk about that in two different ways. So, so yeah, either, either way is acceptable. But I'd say for a guy who's working on his PhD, what would you say that you see or or who are some of the people that are, are helping influence you? Because I would assume that you want to work at that PhD level or, you know, something akin maybe in or out of academics, but it definitely always have an academic flavor after having a doctorate. What are people in academics doing well that are that are veterans? Well, I think I think veterans are doing well um, in, in sort of I don't want to say this, but permeating the landscape, right? I think I think it it, it may not be evident at first, and, and that's what I think the project is about. But there are veterans throughout academia represented at, at roughly the same level you might see them, you know, percentage wise throughout the rest of uh, society. I think, especially in, in my field in history, uh, you know, you, there's a lot there's a lot of veterans that get into, into military history. A lot of officers are sent to to, to um, programs during their career and, and launch themselves into careers after that. My advisor uh, is a retired colonel. And so like that, that makes for a really great ready-made sort of advisee mentorship relationship, right? So I think that's great. There's lot, plenty of, of former enlisted too that, that, that get into get into uh, academic pursuits. And then, and then lastly, and this is where the link between undergraduate students, right, the veteran that, that gets out, uses the GI Bill, goes to college, and, and academia is, is this sort of space, the veteran services space that, that I know you, you work in. And, and I had a really great experience at UNC Chapel Hill with that. And whether, whether you know, whether we're talking about someone just working in that space in, in sort of a staff position or going on to sort of doctorate level study of that world, you know, and, and everything in between. And there's, there's a, I think that that is one of the best where you see the most impact right? Uh, veterans and academics uh, coming together. Absolutely. Wow. That's, that's great. That's, that's, I mean, I agree uh, <laughs> because I do it every day, but you know, my background is I, I taught veteran studies and I worked in the college of education. The life change brought me here, but I couldn't agree more. Like this is where I think being a veteran and being in higher education is the most overt. This is where we wear it on our sleeve the most. However, I would agree with you a hundred percent that veterans are all over the academy, all over every department and every faculty. However, it's one thing, and this has been a common theme thus far, is people are still surprised by that. It's interesting because when you talk about your chair for your dissertation and people like this, they're absolutely everywhere. And so it's interesting that that's not being recognized. Well, let me let me ask you this. So the second question would be veterans in higher education and interpret that however you like. Uh, what's something they, 
could do better. So my initial thoughts on this question are, are to be to try to reach out, right, to the next generation, continue to foster relationships in that in that matter. But 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 I want to be kind of careful here because what I think one reason why you don't see why it's surprising or, or whatnot is because we're talking about questions of identity, right? And so what do these people identify as? Is the veteran identity front loaded or or is it it's part of who they are? But it's like the last line on the CV and it was a great, you know, formational experience or foundational experience, but it's not everything, you know, that encompasses who that person is. And, and that's fine. Either way is fine. And so I, for me, I, I think that there are some problematic, we run into some problematic, some issues when, you know, we wrap ourselves up in this identity of veteran status, right? And in an American society, rich, lar- writ large, you know, kind of puts puts the veteran on the pedestal and cannot, see, it only sees the one side, right? The, where the light is shining, it doesn't see the dark side. So I think that that has a lot to do with it. And it's not, it's not that, you know, I, I don't want to sound like this is some sort of legacy of, of say the Vietnam generation. I mean, some of that, yes, but I think in general, you know, I think there's, there's caution and especially as, as folks uh, understand themselves and who they are and, and, and move on to better, you know, not better necessarily, but bigger right. things sometimes. Right. better. So it, there's like a fine line there, right? On the other hand, though, I believe it is very important that veterans leaving the service, whether they're going to go into a career in academia or not, understand that, yes, they can do that. And and for me, that was very important to informing my choice to go to graduate school because uh, I met a former enlisted infantryman, you know, that was doing graduate studies in, in military history. And I was like, wait, I, I can do this? Okay, right, right. why not? It's this weird fine line of, of should be navigated because because at the end of the day, what's at stake is people's mental well-being. It's, it's a it's an interesting question and, and something that definitely bears more um, more study. Excellent. Well, let me ask you, so since we're, we're bringing up these positive and negative and we're bringing up an interesting intersection of life here, can you tell us a little bit about your personal military experience? What was your time like? What was your desire to join like? How, how did all that come together for you? Yeah. Um, without going, you know, too blow by blow, I come from a family of military service. I, I enjoy Ancestry.com and, and all this sort of stuff. And I could trace, I could trace my roots. Uh, there's a member of the, the New York militia in the American Revolution, an ancestor that was a sergeant in the fourth Minnesota, you know, the March with Sherman to, to the sea and all the, you know, the whole, the whole nine, right? And he, uh, we found, I found his reenlistment papers. Yeah. And, and then, and then my grandfather, and this is all different sides of the family, of course, but a grandfather that, that went to West Point in 1939, graduated in six months early in 19. 43 and went and fought in the Pacific. Uh, my other grandfather who enlisted and in, in was in North Africa, you know, driving a truck with Patton's army. And then, and then my father, he served, he served in the, uh, during the Cold War in the Navy. I, you know, I went in, uh, my little brother went in, a half sister went in. And at one point we were all in 2004, we were all deployed. Uh, I was in Iraq. My brother was in Kuwait and she was in Qatar and with the Air Force. It's, just, it's, it's more or less a family business. And, and we see that bear out, uh, you know, especially as the all volunteer force continues to, to march along. Well, that said, at the age of 18, I joined. In 2000, so this is right before when I was 17. Not necessarily for the college money or anything, but because uh, a I wanted to know what I was doing. It's a very contentious time for a lot of a lot of Absolutely. a lot of kids. And, and the recruiter, and this is this is the funny part because here I am pursuing the, the highest level terminal degree one can pursue, and the recruiter got me because they, they she said, hey. Sign up now and you don't have to worry about all that college prep stuff. <laughs> you know, just graduate and you're fine. Right. And I was like, okay, Roger that. <laughs> 
you know, and coasted the rest of my way in my senior year of high school, it's, it's, which I, I, I love to, to think about that sometimes because life has, has ways of uh, putting you in different places. So I went, I went in the infantry. They got me with the cool guy, Ranger Video. There was this dude that comes out of the out of the swamp all camoed up, which after being in, I'm like, that stuff's going to wash off. So I, I spent 17 years as an instrument. I started out at Fort Lewis. That was really cool because we fielded the very first strikers after borrowing uh, Canadian LAVs, which you made, you know, from your Marine Corps experience. Right, LAVs are- absolutely. Anyway, we fielded the first strikers, took them to Iraq in, in 2003, you know, after the um, invasion. Came back, I, I re-enlisted. I was going to go to college. I was all set up. I was accepted to Central Washington University, uh, which is uh, the alma mater of Jim Mattis and and the ROTC yeah. program there. I was going to do ROTC, right? Right. Because uh, my old first sergeant was like the master sergeant commandant of cadets. So I was like, this is this is for me. This is the perfect situation. Okay, awesome. Uh, my old squad leader becomes the re- retention NCO at the battalion. Hey, Williams, what's going to take to get you to re-enlist? And I said, give me Italy, because it's like the hardest place to get to in the Army, right? There's like, at the time, two battalions, you know, it, it, almost impossible. And he comes back a week later, here you go, here's your control number, you know what I mean? You're good to go. And I was like, wow. Okay, well, I guess I better hold up my end of the deal. What's the guy to do, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Uncle Sam's going to pay me to live in Europe, in Italy? Okay. So I went to Italy and didn't leave the service you know whatever so anyway i did that uh deployed to afghanistan with that unit been 15 months in afghanistan it, the, the famous deployment from uh sebastian jungers which is great because it was an excellent unit and it was an incredibly difficult mission against uh, an incredibly determined enemy and we, you know i mean a lot of terrible terrible casualties uh and, and but i mean some of those men uh, i served with were i mean absolutely some of the best you'll ever meet and i'm incredibly proud to to have been with that battalion during during that time it's, it's sad but i mean i mean you know it's you're sad and proud at the same time it's it's a hell of a combination of of, of emotions absolutely uh, after that uh, when worked at fort benning and then i got to go to alaska went to afghanistan again and then i ended up at fort bragg and and from there uh, i left the service in 2017 and and went to uh, unc chapel hill because it was close and i got in and so i was like all right cool and unbeknownst to me this is like a, an excellent you know undergraduate institution and and i should count myself lucky that i was able to that i got in and all that sort of that's sort of my my career in a nutshell but that's amazing though your your transition story is is so much like mine because literally I went to the school that I chose for my undergrad just because my sister was going there and she's like, well, we haven't seen each other in years. Bunch. And I was like, okay, it sounds like, you know, similar to you. You're like, you're like, it's here. Let's go. Thankfully you, you had a great school though. So, so, so yeah. you're at UNC Chapel Hill, famous for a lot of great reasons. What was your experience like coming from, and you know, it's not like you had done four years in the military. You had done, you said 17 years, right? So mm-hmm. So you, you had a nice long career. What was that like going from your life that you knew for 17 years and of course all the, the complexities with military life to UNC Chapel Hill? Well, how, how was your transition there? What was that experience like? I was I was incredibly lucky. So as I was leaving service, you know, I was at Fort Bragg, which is an airborne unit. You have to jump every few months to maintain pay. I was accepted into an early onboarding program that they did, uh, not just for veterans, but for all transfer students, okay. uh, which was really great and uh you know anyone listening like talk to these folks and i can put you in contact because it is it was an excellent program that kind of got me geared up to go to this this research university and so my last jump was on june 15th my first day at undergrad was june 26th so 11 days later you know right like i'm jumping out of an airplane and 11 days later i'm on 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 this beautiful campus only 90 minutes north of fort bragg too right so like 90 minutes i mean you can even see not to mention you know the the culture of the two areas but but just like the, the the 
the geography, you move from the sand hills region, right, of sparse trees in, in Fort Bragg area to the lush, you know, Piedmont, beautiful, mind-boggling, really. So I did that semester. I had to come back, uh, process a little bit. Got my DD-214 on August 21st. Signed out on, on tour leave or end of uh, ETS leave. Right. Started the fall semester on August 22nd. So wow. literally like the next day. Right. Uh, you know, obviously I, you know, scored, you know, living arrangements up, up, you know, up north. And so that was one of the, you know, one of the reasons to for choosing to attend there. I didn't, I mean, I, I it crossed my mind to apply to schools back in Washington or elsewhere, but it was just, I was like, well, you know, it's easy, right? It's simple. It's right up the road. And it was well suited to receive me, right? I told you a, a minute ago, there was this great uh, onboarding program. I met this uh, excellent, I mean, he, he works in this, the, the university admin space. And at the time he was in charge of um, you know, transfer, you know, it was like a transfer student ambassador sort of, sort of job, right? And he had set this up um, with the School of Education and, and, and they taught like the, one of the classes was the science of learning, right? And here I am 17 years post high school. I'd taken some classes, mostly online through some of, you know, the for-profits that, that you know and love and you see on transfer uh, transcripts. And I was lucky, you know, I, I count myself lucky, honestly, that UNC took a lot of those credits, but I still wasn't ready for, you know, this sort of academic rigor. But this this course kind of helped me kind of understand how, how the brain learned because it was sort of low stakes too, right? It was five credit hours in the summer, right? Real low stakes, five weeks, kind of get you. And then the other class, it was one credit hour was, was, hey, this is how a research university works. And like for class, we'd walk to the library. This is, the, you know what I mean? And, you know, which right. is kind of, it sounds cheesy, but you know, when you're coming in, it, it, in your mid thirties, right? It's extremely important. It was great. But I thought when I got out <laughs> that I would just, uh, yeah, I'll finish a, a bachelor's degree, go teach high school somewhere and, you know, live a good life, right? Well, I mentioned the veteran and PhD program. I signed up. So I, uh, I'm signed up for class and I see this class, right? It said war in American society to 1903. And I was like, eh, sounds like me, right? Heck yeah, you know? And so I took it. And that's where I met the the, the graduate student. That was, that was another uh, another grunt. And he was, um, he, I mean, he was proctoring a test, right? So, but but still like, you know, got to, got to know each other. And I ended up getting to know him pretty well afterwards. And, and that's how I realized that, hey, I can, do this for a living. <laughs> I mean, how, how cool is that? Like I can study the historical roots of, of my own old profession as my new profession and, and hopefully use that to, to help more veterans or, or whoever reads it. Right. And it, it was, it was like a match made in heaven. And, and then, yeah, anyway, then they had another program at UNC about called peace, war and defense. It's like a undergraduate version of a security studies program you might see at Georgetown. So I got involved with that and history. And it was just like, I was, <laughs> I was on a roll. Um, and, and then I was in and out of there and, you know, I finished my bachelor's in 18 months. I had two years worth of credits go, going in and, you know, summer school, you kind of, you can rack them up pretty quick or semester. Uh, it was, it was a kind of a whirlwind, uh, but, but a good whirlwind. Amazing. That's awesome. And that's so awesome. Eh? So many elements of your story are like mine. Uh, Cause I, I was the same way. I graduated in about two years, but I, I was so motivated to treat college like my job mm -hmm. did every summer every hour of every summer semester winter intercessions we were allowed to do one class so I did that and I was just like I gotta do I, yeah. I felt like I had to make up time well that and then there's like a cultural you know thing right like in, in, in the military, and this is something I had to kind of learn in the army. It's, it's, you know, at least for enlisted, it's like, you know, you get it done, right. The, the education, at least, you know, uh, for them is like, check the block, like just knock it out. And, and it wasn't so much about learning as it was about meeting a requirement. Right. Right. And so, and, and that I think is part of that in like work ethic, right? Like, Oh, whatever. What am I going to take leave? Like, nah, it should work. <laughs> Yeah, right. I got a weekend, and then you realize that weekends go away, and sometimes in academia, but that, that's a whole other 
conversation. And, and yeah, absolutely. Like you just take everything you can because why not? I mean, you're not, you're not in Iraq, right? You're not getting shot at. Like Absolutely. Is- absolutely. It's it. Yeah. And it, that comes in handy when you're doing your PhD and you see, you know, you're doing doctorate level work, people in your, your cohort or people in your program are falling by the wayside. They're talking about how hard it is. And you're like, look, I've, I had this conversation with so many people. It's like, I'm going to bed at night. I'm eating. Even if I'm not eating well when I'm writing, I'm still eating. No one has shot at me. Like I can sit down and type, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. So awesome. Awesome. So yeah. saying that, let's talk about, because you've already hit on it several times. And obviously your, your work is, you just said it directly, is part of you were studying who you were, you know, the roots of the unit you were in to help inform others. So how is your experience in the military really informing your academic domain? And you've already talked about a couple of times, but go into a little more detail. Well, I'm going to back up right quick about the academic experience. I got to mention this. Okay. Absolutely. Um, there's an there's a English professor at UNC Chapel Hill named Hillary Lithgow. She teaches a course in um, every two years, right? I mean, it's how it goes, but on, on uh, war and or liter- literature and war, right? And, you know, she focuses okay. on some of the right you know all quiet on the western front of course and and, you know it's it's like a a hundred level english course but she always has a veteran at least in in it and she tries to have a veteran as her ta an undergraduate serve as a ta for this course i didn't really get to know her in time to do that but one of the things that sort of launched me to 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 writing more about my experience was um after i did get to know her they watched the movie um uh, Restrepo. Oh, right. And, and, and that, you know, that's, I mean, I'm not in the movie. I wasn't in that platoon, but I did meet Sebastian Junger and I was, I was in a platoon adjacent to, to that platoon in, in that valley. And so she had me in to kind of, you know, tell the class, you know, about it. Right. And which was, which was really awkward for me. Super awkward. Like I, I'm not special. Right. You know what I mean? Like, no, no, no. I was just a dude that did my, my job. Like right. I'm not cool. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the, that movie, that's the cool, you know, the, the plane and others that aren't in the movie are the cool guys. I am nobody. I mean, I only spent five months in the, in, in, in the Cornwall Valley, but, but she wanted me to talk about it. And that, that's, that's fine. And I was sitting there with my, my backpack on my lap, like, Oh gosh. And something came up and it was about one of the scenes in the movie and, and, you know, going through some grief and over, over a lost comrade, Larry Rubel, rest, rest in peace. This young student, you know, she said, oh gosh, you know, I, I don't think I could understand. And I said, well, you know, maybe maybe you can. Like, have you ever lost a grandparent? Have you ever lost, I mean, it, it's not the same, but it's very, very similar, right? Or even a cat that you love and you grew up with, a dog. Sure, they're not humans, right? But it's very similar. It's grief. What they're, what they're going through on the screen that you see and that we still go through and process is grief. And if you lose a parent uh, or, or a grandparent or even an animal, you still must process grief. And, and it was this incredible moment of learning, right? And like connection. And that sort of, and, and it motivated me to, to kind of continue to, to seek ways to make these connections across you know, the civ mill divide, right? And I spoke a little bit about identity and, and this fine line. And I think that that was this incredible moment of like bridging the civ mill divide. And I, that's what the VFW piece is about. And I'll gladly link, link you to it afterwards. Absolutely. That sort of learning moment continued to inspire me to want to not only focus purely in, in, in the sort of pure history, which is great. I'm going to do it. And if I get too distracted, you know, <laughs> I won't make it to the program. Right. But also seek opportunities like what y'all are doing to sort of bridge this divide that I think is honestly uh, detrimental to, to veteran mental health and, and, and a lot of the issues we see with our compatriots as they, as they, as they leave the service, um, you know, cause it's all about connection and community. Right. And, and where right, from. Absolutely. I just wanted to backtrack to that story real quick about, you know, my time 
at UNC Chapel Hill and, and the sort of the, the gravity and, 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 and of that and the importance of that in my future goals. So anyway. No, understandable. I'm glad you did because I could see, so like what you're saying exactly with the, with by the Civ Mill divide, it's like sometimes these are these things that we think about and ruminate on it by ourselves or, or, you know, I might reach out to someone like you and it's like, we, we talk about it, but to be able to sit in a room primarily of civilians and be able to, to break that down mm-hmm. and have people know like, look, this experience is definitely different. However, it's not as different as some people kind of fetishize it. So that's what people don't understand is there's that weird onion skin layer. So I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. And, and that's sort of the line I talk about. Right. And, right. and, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say stuff because, because I mean, you understand the veteran space better than I do probably, but there's this sort of, you know, if you say like, Hey, look, a lot of this is on us, the vets for, for, for not reaching across. I think, uh, you know, you can't expect the, the minority group in this case, whatever our percentage is in society total, much less the smaller one of, of post 9-11 generation. You can't expect the, the larger group to be like, yeah, we're, come on in. Um, you, we have to kind of take that first step because they already feel off put that they didn't serve or, or whatever it might be. And I think that a lot of times it, it is on it is on the veteran to to sort of uh, at least begin to bridge bridge the divide. At least you know try to meet halfway. Maybe. Take the first step. I couldn't agree more. Awesome. So so this experience and obviously your time in the military and your specific unit and everything has has really influenced your work. Go into a little detail of, of, more about that that kind of informed. Uh, exactly what you're doing right now. So after my first unit in the army was with the strikers, right? And we fielded these strikers. It was great. And then I went to an airborne unit and I basically didn't leave the airborne after that. Uh, and, you know, and, and I, I loved it, right? Like I bought into it hook, line and sinker. The idea of jumping behind enemy lines and, you know, America's shock troops and all this, all this good stuff. That sounds you know, familiar to me, right? Right, right. It's, you know, same, if you do the same stuff in, in the Marine Corps, and right. like, that's a great book on that if you, if you want it. I wanted to know like where that came from. So, you know, I mean, and there's this whole like the bray and the boots, right? It's a, we're all better than never, you know, we're better than the regular infantrymen, da, 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 da straight legs and it's cool but then then this article comes out in in 2015 or 16 in in the army times called does the army it's titled does the army even need airborne and it was in the army times which is like the national Enquirer, but for the army like i distinctively remember when it, so it used to be sitting on the at the shop at on the newsstand as just you know a newspaper and you could pick it up and leaf through it and set it back down and, and, and leave and then i'm sure you know people would do that and realize it was, you know, most of the time the titles seemed a little more sensationalist than they really were. And I've gotten to know some people who write for the Military Times and they're wonderful people. So I hope they don't hear this and, and hate me. But but then they put plastic cover around it. So you couldn't do that anymore. You had to buy it. You had to spend your 350 or whatever it was, you know, and to take it home to read it. And then you read like the one article that you want to read and you're just so disappointed. You're like, I already knew this, you know. What anyway, but this one I had to write. Those of the army even need airborne. I'm at Fort Bragg, right? This is like the, the army calls it the mothership, right? Of the airborne and uh, it's it is just it's a, it's a it's a world unto itself and you know it caused a little uproar around post and you know i read it i yeah whatever and then when really i think of it until i get out and, and i'm at you know chapel hill and of course and they want us to write on you know an innovation in military history and so i started considering that and i remember that that article i referenced that and I figured out that he actually the, the reporter had gotten the uh had, had gotten his topic from a um an academic study done by the combat studies institute at fort leavenworth the title of that is, is from uh, uh phd uh, dr Mark DeVore, and the, the title is uh, it's either When Failure Thrives or Where Failure Thrives. And, and basically, he's, he's asserting that, like, eh, 
really, uh, you know, force in World War II. Like, you know, if we really look at it, you know, yeah, some success, some failure, and but it, it persists. And he goes into that a little bit and he looks at the UK, the United States, and the Soviet Union and how then they arrayed their airborne forces afterwards. And and I was like, this is this is fascinating, but I want to know more, right? That then becomes the sort of basis for my for for my dissertation project. I'm like, there's more to it. We got we got to go deeper. Um, and, and so so I'm working on that. Uh, it's 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 super cool because I'm reading about these legendary figures, the airborne mafia, for example, is a term that I first see in, in a guy by the name of Andrew Basevich's uh, work on the Pentomic Army of the 1950s. He, he uses it to describe General Matthew Ridgway, Maxwell Taylor, and James Gavin, who were division and then corps commanders in World War II of the uh, 82nd, Ridgway and then Gavin of the 82nd, and Taylor of the 101st, and then Ridgway 18th Airborne Corps. Um, and they, they rise to like the highest level of the army and, and sort of kind of control what's going on throughout the 50s. Uh, Ridgway, Taylor succeeds uh, Ridgway as army chief of staff, and then Taylor, they all, they both, all three of them resigned sort of in protest to Eisenhower's policies, write books, you know, lamenting, you know, Eisenhower's lack of attention to the army and among many, many other. Taylor, Kennedy brings Taylor back as a special uh, advisor to him. And then, you know, he comes back all the active duty for Kennedy as the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. And then Taylor's South Vietnam, is that's all starting up. And so like there's these fascinating guys throughout this early Cold War that are calling the shots that were airborne commanders in World War II. And so I'm trying to find the connection there. And obviously, they have many, many other understudies and, and, and all that that, uh, that come along the way with them. So anyway, I love it. It sounds very in-depth research, but re- like the type of research that I see having application among different aspects of the military, but also different ways to inform people who are non-military. It's very marketable, beautiful. And for any projects, obviously, you're running a dissertation, and that's a time-consuming beast. And it sounds like you're. You're doing your due diligence on it. Are there anything, any projects besides that? Or do you plan to do something other than just, you know, put this on ProQuest and say, hey, I did a dissertation. What do you, what's, what do you got going on right now? Obviously, the dissertation is, is takes up the majority of my time. I, right now, I am finishing up coursework in the spring and will take general exams, you know, as long as everything works out. It will, and, and my wife is due with our second child in February. So ah, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. That's another another part of the um, the fun of that is uh, graduate school in, in your mid to late thirties. So the uh, the plan is to take take the general exams then, and then and then I'll be headlong into the dissertation for the next you know, two, three years after that. And, and, and you know, absolutely. And no, I'm not just, I don't plan to deposit this on ProQuest and, and call it a day. Uh, the idea here is to turn this into a book uh, eventually and see where it goes from there. And the curse of, of at least the historians I talk to is that you're always like thinking of the next two, three projects, right? Uh, and, and I'm sure that's, that's an, that's a probably ubiquitous throughout academia. Right. Uh, because, because, you know, we have minds, you know, that are, that are always, it's always churning, right? Always, you research like, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, my initial idea on the dissertation was that I would take this all the way through Haiti, right? 1994. And okay. I'm like, wow, that's let that, that is, that, that's, we're getting into magnum opus territory, right? <laughs> you know? And so, so I'm trying to curtail it there, but that what that means, means is I already have some research and that's kind of like part two of the book, if you will. Book two could be late Cold War. So that's an idea. Uh, I think what's what's really interesting here, it, it might take the research in different directions, is 
is, is sort of like the, the, the cultural aspect of what, I, what I'm looking at and how, how cultures change, how cultures change other cultures and affect, you know, larger, because I'm, you know, what I'm trying to get at is how this culture of the Airborne, five divisions, 13, se- you know, 13 separate regiment, you know, regiments, how that then affects big army. And, and so, and th- th- there's, there's a lot of different ways you could go with that outside of just the Airborne or comparatively, right? I can compare it, compare it to the Marine Corps. Marine Corps was six divisions in, 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 in World War II. So it's actually pretty similar uh, size right. or, or, you know, the armor branch, right. And, and, and all the Patton and all the great tankers, you know, Abrams is Lieutenant Colonel in, in, uh, in the bulge and, and he ends up chief of staff of the army in the seventies. So, you know, and then there, there's plenty of others. That's, that's only one, one armor officer. And so, you know, there, there's all sorts of other avenues uh, to take this. So we'll see, right. we'll see. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I've got all kinds of, I, I kind of think about take, writing an article on the, the, the history, you know, where the, uh, the poncho liner comes from, uh, the everyone's favorite Woody. Uh, Absolutely. I, <laughs> but that, that, that would be a complete side project right now. But, but a fun one. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, why not, right? Somebody, somebody needs to look into that because it's a pretty amazing piece of equipment. Probably the best thing the Army's fielded in 50 years, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Me All too. right. All right. I mean, I, I think almost everybody would say that. Uh, it's a great couch blanket, right? I have another one I keep in my car as an, you know, for an emergency blanket, uh, okay. just, you know, just in case, right? Perfect. I mean, my kids have grown too. They're like, where's the poncho liner over any other blanket? What do you do? This has been great. And, you know, Rob, I'm excited to to hear about all your developments and, and everything you're doing. Your research just sounds amazing and needed, top of amazing and needed interesting and i think it, it will make for a great book so I, I i thank you for being with us today thank you for being a guest and ladies and gentlemen thank you for listening to veterans and academics and uh thank you rob very much for being here thank you all right everyone have a great day this is veterans and academics we thank all of you for listening Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McCleese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.